The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. Welcome to the Broadcast Dialogue Podcast, the show all about the media industry in Canada. Welcome to the final episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast for 2019. I'm the editor of Broadcast Dialogue, Connie Thiessen, and for our last show of the year, we have the BD team in studio here in Vancouver. I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves. Okay, well, I'm Christian Lin. I am the creative director for um, BD. Is that my title? I that's your so. that's your title. You can talk about some of the other stuff you do here for Momentum, though. I'm not so much going to talk about uh, what I do for Momentum, but how I'm coming from a, uh, a background of television broadcasting and promotions and You're a, a gamer to the yeah. core. Yes, yes, yes. And so the, the way gaming has changed uh, the broadcasting world in the last decade is really something that's interest me, so I will talk about this, and I'm going to let James introduce himself. I'm James Wallace, Director of Digital at Momentum Media Marketing, as well as Momentum Media Networks, and Broadcast Dialogue, and uh, also do a lot of work for Radio Player Canada. You're the brain behind Radio Player Canada. Uh, Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, so it depends on people's opinions. Basically, what we're going to do is talk about some of the big stories of 2019 on this episode. So we've all chosen two or three to talk about. There was no shortage of stuff to write about because the entire definition of what broadcasting is is a sliding scale. Uh, on that note, I think we should start with James since he's on the cusp of all things digital. Do you want to start talking about Spotify? So this year, obviously, is a big year for podcasting. Apparently, there's 750,000 podcasts, 550,000 of them that are currently active. I'm going to say there's probably double that. Those are just Apple numbers, but, you know, there's probably double that. A lot of them niche market pieces, small, but, you know, they, they're, they're serving a purpose. The, the big thing about podcasting right now is everyone's a podcaster. Everyone's getting into podcasting. Lots of Canadian radio people moving into podcasting, Rogers and Chorus, Rogers with Frequency Network, Chorus with Curious Cast are their podcast networks. You know, Rogers moved forward and bought out Pacific Content, uh, Steve Pratt from originally from CBC Radio 3 and uh, Chris Boyce who run that and um, probably a really good purchase on their part. But I think the, the big thing about podcasting right now is there's not a lot of discoverability and um, that makes it a little more difficult for the average day-to-day listener like your mom uh, to discover podcasts easily. But that's not to say that that's not going to change. I mean, you know, the internet at, at its inception was incredibly difficult to discover everything and everything or anything along with YouTube in its infancy was super difficult to actually find what you wanted to listen to or be thrown back something of a suggestion as to what you want to want to do. So with that, you know, we see 
probably the biggest player in all of this realm right now, Spotify, that has um, looked to podcasting as the next kind of path for audio uh, online, streaming audio online. So there's, they're, they're heavily branching out outside of just simply streaming music. And they're looking to pull in as much audio into the platform as they possibly can to serve back to the listener. $500 million in purchases this past year, all based on podcast services. They looked at purchasing Gimlet, Parcast, Anchor, uh, to name a few. Um, And they've seen a huge jump, 39% they're stating in regards to uh, listeners uh, based around the idea of pulling in podcasts. So it's, it's early days for this, but they'll probably be the one of the first ones to kind of dive in with the idea of creating a discoverability path for people, you know, with suggestions on what they, what you can listen to and so on and so forth, as well as they've based themselves around pulling in exclusive content. So, you know, they've signed deals with, the Obamas and a bunch of other studios to bring in talent, which in turn creates an environment where they can garner subscribers based around the fact that those subscribers want to listen to those particular audio offerings that they can't get anywhere else. That kind of goes against the whole tenant of podcasting in some respects. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's up to you or anybody that would agree with or not agree with the idea of walled off podcasting ideas. But it, it, it looks like Spotify will be the sort of go forward in regards to how much money they're going to spend. And I, it'll be interesting to see what Apple does, but it looks like Apple will be, I don't think Apple's going to catch up now. I think they're going to fail at this. Well, if you, if you read the weekly briefing this week, I wrote about Vox Nest's latest report, which uh, their numbers show that Spotify has pulled ahead of Apple Podcasts in 10 countries, including Canada. So I think all those efforts have paid off. Spotify is stating that they're uh, garnering paid subscribers at twice the rate of Apple Music now. So if that continues on that path, it'll be pretty difficult unless Apple comes up with something that's just so beyond belief for the user it'll be pretty difficult for them to catch up with that kind of pace. And, you know, I think Spotify has really pushed themselves deep into podcasting and what it's done is it's created an environment where they're actually profitable. They haven't been profitable in 13, 14 years. They push themselves into podcasting, they spend $500 million. Stock goes up by 25% in the past eight weeks. And that's all based around the podcast. It's not necessarily based around music licensing. So it, it, it's a win-win for them, whereas Apple just seems to just be towing the line of what they've always provided, which is not that great anymore. And you still have some faith in the future of smart speakers, because mine is waning. <laughs> Usage is increasing, but I think the big thing is, well, number one, privacy is a big concern for people now. You know, you've got a microphone in your house that's always listening, always on. It's a little bit terrifying and you know the, the media's kind of started to push that idea that that thing is there and it's listening to you so people aren't really too comfortable with that as well as if you really sit down with the echo or google home which are really the only two players in this there, there are no others 
there's not a lot of conversational ability there. It's really it really lacks anything truly um, like as an intelligent assistant in any way. Of course, the difficulty with that is that for it to truly be the assistant that you want it to be, you have to completely sub submit to it and disregard all of your privacy. So, it, it, you know, they're they're in a bad kind of position. Well, not a bad position, but but in a difficult position. So. It, there's nothing really proactive about what that assistant is providing you. And just like podcasting in some regards, content discovery is poor. You know, it's, it's just really bad. And there's, there's no privacy, as we said. And the experience for the user is really not that great. And from the development side, which we're privy to here, what you can actually develop on the platform is not that great either. So what you're creating, what you've created is a microphone and a speaker in somebody's house, but developers can't create any great functionality and there's not a lot of privacy and people are not too happy about the privacy. So, you know, it, it's really going to come down to the audience and if they're really interested in continuing with using them. I'm going to hop over to Christian and staying on the digital uh, side, Disney Plus. That was a huge story. It's not just another over-the-top service coming to Canada because the main difference between... Disney Plus and Amazon or Netflix, it's Amazon and Netflix, even if they're investing in producing their own original content, they still rely heavily on, on, on licensing and distribution deal, where Disney Plus owns all the rights of all the content available on the service. Not only it's bound to um, impact the Canadian trading field and being one of the major players in there, but it's also going to heighten all the the effect on cord cutting and um, if you look at the number from um, Convergence Research for example in 2019 we've seen a massive drop of Canadian TV subscriber much larger one than 2018 and the trend is expected to stay the same in 2020 and beyond so it, it's really it's not just a digital one but it has an impact on um, traditional broadcasters in Canada and television in particular. So how many over-the-top services are you subscribed to right now? Right now too, I've unsubscribed from Netflix. Fi finding content that interest interesting me is much more difficult and at the price point of Disney Plus it, it, it's hard to say no to what they have. I mean they've got Marvel, they've got Pixar, They've got National Geographic. They've got the entire Disney back catalog. They've got 13 of the 20 highest grossing films of all time on the platform available now. Where Netflix, you pay more for 4K, Ultra, HD, and all that. It's the same price for Disney Plus, and it's available on four screen. This is a nice commercial for Disney Plus. So you're... <laughs> So you're subscribed to Amazon, Disney Plus, and you watch a fair amount of YouTube, I know. Yes. Uh, do you think that there is going to be a level of OTT fatigue with all of these new providers coming online? Uh, totally. Feel free, feel free to jump in. There, I like Disney Plus. Disney Plus is awesome. We've said Disney Plus about 50 times now. The problem I have is that well, there's a couple issues that I have here, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And I have kids, and you know, our house is a streaming, a bastion of streaming. There's cable in our house, but it's only upstairs. The only person that watches is my is my wife. Tell the, the story of how it broke and no one noticed. 
Oh, yeah. Our, our cable box in our living room broke about, uh, well, this was a while back, but it, it, it was broken. It didn't, it didn't work anymore. It didn't change channels. I think it was stuck on, I don't remember what channel it was stuck on. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm just going to leave it and, and see how long until the kids actually even notice that the cable vision is not working or the, the box itself is not working. And it sat there for like four weeks before anyone even mentioned to me that this thing isn't working. And I thought, you know, dude, why, why am I paying for this? But unfortunately, you know, a lot of it's bundled. It's bundled into, you know, your cable is connected to your internet access, is connected to your, is connected to your VoIP phone, is connected to your cell phone, all that kind of stuff. But I think the thing, the, the big struggle I have with Disney Plus or any of these platforms right now, and this is as a consumer, not as, as someone who works in these types of industries, is I've already paid for these movies. I took my kids to watch these movies in the theater. Then I bought the DVDs for my kids to watch these movies when DVDs were still relevant. So I paid for the DVDs to watch in the car or whatever. And now I'm paying a monthly fee to watch the same movies that I already paid for before. So I, I get, you know, it, that's part of the model is that you're subscribing and all of that. But I, I'll be curious to see in Disney's case if they can keep up the pace in regards to adding content to the platform on a consistent basis. Because outside of Mandalorian and things like that, there's not a lot of new content added to these platforms. And that's part of the problem I have with all of these platforms now is that they have to create this content at such a rate to feed the thirst of the viewer there's no way they can afford to do this it's not possible it's, it's logistically and economically impossible to be able to feed the thirst of the content consumer at eight dollars a month or or fourteen dollars a month or twenty dollars a month i mean right now in our house i pay for nine nine different services it well exceeds whatever my cable bill might be right now but nobody watches the cable so i'm paying for that but nobody's watching it, it it's you're gonna see i think you're gonna see heavy uh heavy price fatigue for these things and you know like even the sports versions like DAZN, it's awesome my, my oldest is a football player he loves it he can watch nfl and all of that but all it is is repackaged television i'm watching nbc football on a streamed service with ads and i'm paying a monthly fee to watch it so who's the fool in that you know in that equation <laughs> me but you know it is what it is it is what it serves and i yeah i don't know if it can how this will pan out i, I just can't see like i pay for brickbox youtube google music amazon dzone netflix some multilingual one for the wife and two more i don't even know what they are i know I, I counted them up but it's well beyond the price point of what people should be paying so since we're talking about television content yes you your top story of the year christian you've selected your top television broadcast story of the year let's talk about that the raptors winning the NBA title at, at the p total of about 16 million unique Canadians have tuned in at some point during the the final game with a peak at 10 million. But I think it goes well beyond just Canadian pride and supporting a fellow Canadian team. I think it's more there's a shift in um, 
Canadian taste when it comes to sports and which sports they want to consume. And of course, hockey is going to reign supreme. There's not going to be change anytime soon. But is basketball something that's... Can Canada have a second NBA franchise? You know, we haven't had one in a long time, but things change. Leonard returning to Toronto this month has broken audience record for a regular game. It was not final, it was not a playoff game, and yet he broke audience records. I'm going to switch back from traditional sports to esports. There's a study from Intel that came out this year saying that 20% of Canadians consider esports as important as traditional sports. 10 years ago, no one would have would have said that. So there's an evolution in the way Canadians see sports and there's an opportunity there. So why are we still seeing the same programming when it comes to sport that we see 10 years ago? Why there's more Canadian interest in the in esports than in the CFL, but on non-specialty sports channel, how come there's more content about the CFL and absolutely barely any content about esports? So those are questions that are interesting to me and I think the the, the breaking audience records for the, the, the NBA final um, it, it, there's a, a, a much deeper interpretation that needs to be made about those numbers. We did see Bell Media acquire a stake in Overactive Media, the esports entertainment company. Yep. Uh, you wrote an article for us this year that was that was on why more terrestrial broadcasters should be investing in esports. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Esports and gaming is a really easy pass to the next generation of um, content viewers. And that's something that Forbes have coined the term Cord Never, which is for um, a generation that are not cord cutters. They've never lived with a cord. Grew up watching cartoons on Netflix, they're watching YouTube, they're consuming stuff on their tablet, but they've never watched traditional television or listened to radio. And this is why Michael Grasic, that is known as Shroud Online, um, signing an ex- exclusivity deal with uh, Microsoft Mixer streaming platform, is to me one of the most important story of the year. So for, so for people who don't know, Shroud is a former uh, competitive gamer based in Toronto. He's a top streamer. Um, and earlier this year, he left Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, for an exclusive streaming deal. He, he signed an exclusivity deal with um, Microsoft to stream exclusively on their platform, Mixer. And that came two months after Microsoft um, snatched Tyler Blevins, also known as Ninja, who was the top streamer on Twitch on another exclusivity deal to come stream on their platform. So I think we should back up and you should you should tell people what Twitch and Mixer are because there are there are people who are listening who are not going to know and you need to open up this whole Absolutely. world up for everybody. So Twitch and Mixers are live stream platform where people can play games or stream or stream them playing game and streaming their lives. Video games. Video games. Not Monopoly. Not Monopoly or... <laughs> well... Monopoly the video games. Um, but in essence, let, let's, let's take Ninja. Tyler Blevins 
has a social footprint of over 41 million um, subscriber followers online. And the exclusivity deal he signed with Microsoft is estimated between, we know it's a double digit million dollars per year. Um, Shroud's contract is estimated between six and eight million dollar US per year for streaming exclusively on the platform. And that's not counting that on average, this creator get around $50,000 per hour streaming video games. So it's not a little business. And so far, it hasn't paid out for Microsoft as far as gaining more audience on Mixer or significant audience or market share, but it helped them acquire a lot of top talents. And it's really about getting the next generation of um, people consuming streaming content online that they're, they're going after. So basically, within that evolution of the definition of broadcasting, this is an area that's really overlooked but let's just say that Shroud going to from Twitch to Mixer is the equivalent of Howard Stern going away from terrestrial broadcasting to go to satellite broadcasting. Okay, okay. So now you've mentioned Howard, and we can we can go back into talking about radio. Um, Stern. <laughs> because we're going to talk about syndication, which is act, it's actually ironic you brought up Howard Stern because he was sort of the first big test in Canada for syndication, which was short-lived. But uh, if there was any one, um, you know, single trend in terrestrial radio in Canada this year, it was radio syndication, particularly in the country formats. So Stingray introduced a regional morning show for its BC uh, interior stations. You have syndicated mornings across Stingray's Real Country. You have a syndicated midday show introduced in October, hosted by Paul McGuire. You have Bell Media's Pure Country stations with a syndicated mid midday show. And then on the Rock and Top 40 side, Willie in the Morning, which is uh, Chorus's Rock 101 morning show here in Vancouver. That's now airing on mornings in Q107 uh, in Calgary, which is, which is kind of unprecedented in terms of syndication going into a morning time slot. Uh, and then we have Brook and Jubal, which are, which are playing on a number of chorus stations, which are based out of Seattle. I do think we're going to see more of this in 2020. But what I find interesting is that in the last couple of years, community radio has also had this resurgence. Part of the reason being that, you know, people are seeking more authenticity and hyper-local. So, yeah. So you have, you've got, you've got these two sort of very polarized trends. That research is in the community radio stuff is all about context. You know, you can have access to the whole world, but you still want to know about your local community and a lot of syndicated content won't do that for you. So I guess the argument behind a syndicated morning show is that you get a, you know, better level of talent in maybe a smaller medium market. Uh, although we are seeing this trend emerge in the bigger markets too, like Edmonton and Calgary. You know, it's great. You can hear all the talent you want, but if they're not contextually talking about things that you are interested in or that are, have any meaning to you on your day-to-day, -day, like your drive-in or whatever, however you may be consuming that content, it's not going to last very long for you as a listener. I mean, you know, yeah, they're funny and they're great talent and all of that, but 
what are you sacrificing in the end? You're kind of losing the connection that you intended to have with your audience in the first place. And it just, I don't know, I don't know what kind of an environment that creates, especially on the smaller community level. Like, you know, you go outside of the big cities in Canada and radio still has its, its value in regards to being a means for people to communicate and get information about their local community. But if they can't even get that, they're going to go somewhere else. And that somewhere else may not be the radio, you know, especially in the car. Uh, any predictions for 2020, James? What I'm curious about is uh, which one of these services, as far as streaming, whether that's audio or video, whatever it is, radio, which one of these is going to die? Because one of them is going to have a, a knife thrust upon it at some point in 2020. There's, there can't be this many players in this environment. It's, again, they can't create this much content. It's not possible. It's logistically impossible. It's economically impossible. And so which one of these are going to actually just die? My prediction is tune in. The reason I'm saying it is because uh, in 2018, they hired a, uh, a economics firm, a Lion Tree Advisors, to think about the idea of a sale and nobody wanted to buy it. Uh, and they were willing to go as little as $500 million and nobody wanted it. And now, specifically in the UK, they're being sued, TuneIn, uh, based around the fact that they're streaming unlicensed music into the UK from radio stations that are broadcasting from outside of the UK. TuneIn does not hold the rights to the licensed music that's being broadcast through their system. I don't think that they can sustain the lawsuits. So if the UK, the ruling in the UK has essentially ruled in favor of Sony and Warner as far as TuneIn streaming music unlicensed, what happens if Sony and Warner decide they're going to do this and sue TuneIn for streaming unlicensed music in Canada? And then they move to Australia and do it, and then New Zealand, and then India, and then wherever else in the world, you know, Japan, or wherever, wherever else it may be. I don't think that TuneIn can actually sustain this many lawsuits, which might just drive them out of business. There's nothing there to buy, so it's kind of difficult for them to sell. You feel SoundCloud's shaky, too. Yeah, SoundCloud's always been kind of weird. <laughs> they have no apparent model to make money. And but they have lots of like heavy, heavy financial investors. You know, if you think of all of the sort of SoundCloud rappers that were discovered on SoundCloud or even Post Malone, discovered on SoundCloud, what did SoundCloud get out of that? A big fat zero. So, you know, they they're they're doing a great service. Lots of people get discovered through their platforms and all of that and they have a paid platform or a paid tier of platform but I don't think it can survive it, it just it doesn't look like it could survive to me who wants the last word um I'm just gonna wish a <laughs> what a surprise <laughs> joyeuse fête oh no to all our francophone listeners which I know there's a few that's it okay robots we'll see you all in 2020. Next decade. Yay. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. 
For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.